Basic Income Podcast. I'm Owen Poindexter. And I'm Jim Pugh. Recently, an article was published in Fast Company Magazine by Eile Anzalotti. And the premise of the article was that Social Security may provide a very natural mechanism for us to actually establish universal basic income in the United States. Now, this will be a sort of companion episode to the recent discussion we had about current legislation that's being proposed that in some ways resembles basic income. That one talked about how these programs were similar. In this episode, we're going to talk about how you could actually take those programs and bring it the rest of the way. And you see a number of proposals around expanding these programs to something that could resemble a basic income. So we wanted to dive in on the major ones and talk about how you might bring a major program like Social Security into a basic income and whether or not that's a good idea. So let's start with that one. Jim, do you think we could expand Social Security into something basic income-like or a full basic income? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of interesting potential here. I, I could see, so what the author of this piece described is that as most people know, currently, primary the primary aspect of Social Security is regular monthly payments to elderly people. And that's seen as a sort of government-run pension due to contributions that they've made over time through taxes on their paychecks. But what the author points out is, uh, first, that so, so there is already this conceptual similarity for a certain set of folks. And that what you could do first is say, just like expand the floor for elderly people. Right now there is actually a, a minimum amount for social security, but it's actually below the poverty level. It's called the special minimum primary insurance amount. And so I, I think step one would just be to say top that up so that you actually do have a true income floor above the poverty level for seniors. But then what she goes on to mention is that we actually have, in addition to the main social security program, we have the supplemental Social Security, which goes to not just seniors, but also people who have some sort of disability or, or issue that prevents that, that's seen as preventing them from working in a normal capacity. And so those folks are also getting regular checks. And now what you could do is to take that and expand it out such that it, it was actually making sure that you were above the poverty level, which, again, it doesn't necessarily do right now and that it could go to more people so that we could start saying the idea of, of who qualifies as receiving the support is, is broader than it is right now. Another idea would be to just shift the age of when you can start receiving it. Currently, you're eligible to start receiving Social Security when you turn 62. You get greater benefits if you wait until you're older. You could just start to shift that younger, and over time, eventually, this would be something that could go to effectively all adults, and so you end up with the UBI that way. So, yeah, I mean, it, it seems like there's a couple different ways here that you could take Social Security and start moving in that direction such that eventually, whether, whether it's expanding who gets the SSI or it's shifting the age range, everyone is getting UBI. So let's get into the pros and cons of, of that potential pathway. I, I think an obvious pro is that Social Security is very popular. Um, it's something that we take for granted as Americans. And the idea of expanding it, I think, and there's sort of a budget hawk um, argument against it. But other than that, I think it's a popular program that people like and would support expanding. Yeah. In fact, a couple of years back, I was involved in an effort doing polling around basic income. And one of the things we looked at was how people responded to different names for UBI and whether that changed if they liked the program or not. And by a pretty clear margin, the most popular was Social Security for All. Mm. So it is, it's something that, yeah, people, I think, have a 
see very positively. I, I, there's polling around this that shows that Social Security is, I think, the most popular governmental program that exists right now. And so being able to go off those coattails to, to push UBI, that seems like a pretty clear benefit here. Yeah, so in addition to it being a, a positive thing, it's a familiar thing. When you start talking about basic income, it, a lot of the time it feels like you have to just start from zero and talk about how it would work, how you would pay for it, how, all this stuff. And with Social Security, you know, I, I guess you still have to talk about how you'd pay for it, but it's already in, in our heads as something that's part of the government. And, you know, we don't think about taking it away. Or So expanding something that people already know and already like is just an easier, easier lift. So on the con side, I, I think there are a few reasons to be maybe cautious here. I think first is that Social Security right now is seen as something you're getting back to a large degree. And so you know you've paid into it throughout your career, and then once you hit a certain age, you start getting money from it. And so I think there is, and obviously it's not, actually I don't know if most people know, but it's not a one-to-one. -one. It's not that the amount you put in is the amount you get back. There's just different formulas they use. But I, I think there is kind of that transactional view around it. And so I wonder if it might be challenging to convince people once they spend a bit of time thinking about it, uh, and, and particularly if there was some negative campaign against this expansion, whether something that goes to everyone still fits in that same cognitive space for folks. Because it is, in that case, it's pretty clear that there are some people who will be getting out far more than they put in. And maybe that then causes some cognitive dissonance for folks so that they, they don't support it as much as they might when you just heard, hear the name. Yeah, I've occasionally gotten an almost defensive reaction when I, when I say basic income would be like just expand Social Security for everyone. People say, well, well, I've invested in Social Security. I've put money in. I'm getting money out. And if we're talking about expanding Social Security to people who have put no money in, then, yeah, that the lift gets even harder. I also think it's going to be a difficult rhetorical uh, struggle to uh, bring the age down because we think of Social Security as essentially a retirement fund, that you have, you've reached the end of your, your working years and kind of work is now optional and now you have this fund that you can tap into and enjoy your, your later years. And if we're talking about bringing the age down to, say, 55, 50, we still think of those as working years. And as people live longer and are healthier for longer, you, you often hear the discussion in the opposite direction of should we start Social Security later to reflect that people are staying in the workforce longer. So I think it might take a reconfiguring of how we think of Social Security to actually make this path viable for basic income. Another potential concern that, or potential con that I see here is for people who are already receiving Social Security, if you're talking about changing the program, even if it's just an expansion, I could imagine that it might not be that hard to convince a lot of those folks that making these changes, particularly when it's expanding who's eligible, would be something that is not in their best interest. And so you can imagine a campaign targeting people age 65 plus saying, hey, they want to like take all your Social Security money and give it to other people. And so people who are receiving benefits right now, not just because they feel like they're getting back what they're owed because of their contributions, simply from concerns around, oh, 
are you actually going to be taking away something which I'm counting on now? That might make for a challenging political argument. Yeah, and that's the most reliable voting block. And so uh, anything seen as a threat to the elderly is, is very difficult politically, and that's why Social Security is as stable politically as it is. So next up, we want to talk about a very familiar policy, which is the Earned Income Tax Credit. Owen, how do you see EITC transitioning into a full UBI? So for the Earned Income Tax Credit, there are some legislative proposals along these lines, and we, we talked about some of them in our previous episode. Um, essentially, right now, the Earned Income Tax Credit goes to low-income workers um, who are above a certain threshold and below a certain threshold. So step one would be perhaps to expand those thresholds so that, um, for starters, you could make it so it goes to higher earners and also to lower earners, um, and eventually to people not earning any money at all. Um, it also only goes to, to people earning money. So we could start by expanding the definition of work, perhaps to students and care workers, and eventually perhaps to the rest of the population, which you could do by just saying, by expanding it to people who, who are not earning. <laughs> Um, and uh, you might even have to rename it at that point from something other than the earned income tax credit. And lastly, you'd want to make it more generous. Uh, right now, you can expect maybe a few thousand dollars if you are qualifying for this program, and that's, that's something, but it's not a basic income. And so you'd want to make the program much more generous and gradually expand who it can go to to resemble something like a basic income. So as far as the pros of this, I think that as with Social Security, EITC is a popular program. It's not nearly as well known, but people who do know about it like it because they, they get a, a big... Yeah, people like money. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and I think because it, it does tend to have pretty bipartisan support, people, and I, I think a lot of this is because it is tied to work, there, there is this idea of like, oh, like this is encouraging the right behavior. But, Anyway, pe people like the program, so the idea of taking this and expanding it such that we could eventually get TBI, there, there is that advantage that, that you have something that people like. Yeah, I would just add that I think there's a very strong policy case for expanding the earned income tax credit. It's very effective at lowering poverty and a lot of the knock-on effects we see in basic income studies around education and healthcare. And those effects won't end at, I think it's around $35,000 where, where the EITC goes to zero. If you could bring that up to $50,000, and I strongly suspect to see all those same effects, especially at a time where people are you know, struggling to you know, hold their jobs or have a lot of uh, precarious employment or um, a lot of chaos in their economic lives. I think it's a pretty easy case to make to expand the program. And I think another thing that lends itself towards transitioning this from just EITC into eventually UBI is the, the framing of, of a guaranteed income. And, and I think that the Economic Security Project has done a really good job of kind of wrapping that with the policy here because there is, it's, the, the way it's being talked about now is a guaranteed income for workers. The idea that if you're working, you are then going to get some base amount every year. And but again, guaranteed income, I mean, that's been like the name for what we now call EBI for a long time. And so I think there is already that adjacency that, that could work in our favor when talking about taking it all the way there. I think the tough part here is focusing this on work. Um, 
the proposals we have right now to expand this to more of the population are, well, one, raising the income thresholds, but two, saying that caregiving is work, being a student is work. And I'm all for that. But then how do you make that leap to you're, you're just not earning money, you are unemployed, and uh, you are of working age, and you're not a student, and you're not taking care of anyone. Those people still get nothing. And with a basic income, obviously, those that's universal, everyone gets it. And so how do you, you make that leap, I think, is, is difficult, especially if we are expanding it along the rhetorical lines of expanding the definition of work. You could, you know, throw in a community service program or something, something that's universally available to tap into that fund. Uh, but then that's still not, that's still a conditional program. So making that jump from you're eligible if you are a worker to you're just eligible, that's a tough one. I'm not sure how you do it. Yeah, I, I mean, frankly, I think to actually go from EITC to a full UBI would require a massive narrative shift in this country because it is, I mean, EITC, the, the reason that it's so doable right now to expand it in these ways is because it very much plays into our current ideas around deservedness and the fact that if you are working, you should do okay. And so it's pushing like the boundaries of working. And so I, I think you can, as you said, like make some headway there, but it's very, very hard for me to imagine going that final leap to Ashley saying everybody gets it without a complete shift in the way that we think about who deserves to receive support in this country and who doesn't. And so I think that that's, that's what I see as like the big, big limitation here that, uh, yeah, some, something else will need to happen in order to, to allow us to get that final final distance. And yeah, I guess it's worth saying that that's true anyway for a UBI, but yeah, if we are talking about using this as a launching off point, that is sort of doubling down on the working narrative and then trying to break it. So yeah, it's a tough one. Another program we at least wanted to touch on is a child tax credit. So Jim, do you see a path from child tax credit to UBI? Honestly, no. I think that, as we've talked about in the past, there are, I think there are a lot of advantages to pushing a larger, more generous child tax credit. We already have a refundable child tax credit at the federal level, which means that, that people are getting unconditional income if, if they have a kid. And there are ways of expanding that to give more money, to have it more regular, so that the idea of unconditional cash becomes more familiar. I don't see any way that this expands into a full UBI. I think that... The, the advantage of the child tax credit is that it's, it's popular to support kids, and so there's more potential to make headway here. But I, it's, I basically can't imagine any scenario where you can think about taking that program and then expanding it in different ways such that everyone gets it. Because I think it is, conceptually, it's, it's just so tied to that particular area of support. Yeah, one parallel that I've been toying with when thinking about this topic is the idea of healthcare, where right now, um, after the Affordable Care Act, kids can stay on their parents' plans until they're 26. And uh, we very nearly got Medicare for a drop down from 65 to 55 for the eligibility age. And so you could see that age gap eventually closing to the point where you essentially have healthcare for everyone. And if you could somehow put basic income on that same track of you know, Social Security coming down and a child allowance coming up, 
then then you have less ground to cover. But I think it's just hard. We're just dealing with very different kind of rhetorical spaces in terms of expanding health coverage and expanding cash support. Because again, you're, you still have to contend with the idea that people of working age are expected to work for their money. And you, you haven't, we haven't really cracked that one yet. And I would say, I think arguing that children can stay on their parents' plan to 26 is one thing. If you suddenly said, stay on until 30 or 35, I think a lot of people would start scratching their heads because unless effectively you're saying like, oh, like we don't really expect people to work until they're into their mid-30s, which I don't think anyone is buying into, I, I think that that would suffer a, a similar challenge to the idea of, of bumping up the age on child tax credit. All right, so the final program that we wanted to talk about, thinking about the pathway from it to a full UBI, is a carbon dividend. So, Owen, what do you think? So I think this actually has a lot of promise. The idea of a carbon dividend, of course, is that we'd put a fee or a tax on carbon extraction, and then the revenue from that would go to everyone in the form of a dividend. Um, so once you do that, you have a very small UBI, and then you basically just need to find other revenue sources or really increase the price on carbon uh, until it's something more resembling a basic income instead of just a, a universal dividend. Uh, the, the one issue is that we don't currently have a carbon dividend. Yeah, so what I like about this is it, it actually, as you said, is a universal income. And so we do get around all the questions of deservedness that come up with every other program we talked about because everyone gets it. We see this as something that's just like, oh, this is a right now. Like everyone's going to be receiving a check. And so I think that that, how people perceive that, I think really lends itself to going a step beyond that to saying, okay, now everyone's going to get a full basic income. So yeah, I think in contrast to all the other options, that's a big advantage this one has. Yeah, and it taps into, I'd hope, a different headspace, where as opposed to Social Security, where it's like, okay, you're, you're done with your working life, perhaps, or um, the child tax credit or the earned income tax credit is very conditional around a certain set of circumstances. This is more in a different space of not one's personal conditions. It's that some companies are polluting, and they should pay into a, a system to pay back for the damage they're doing to the environment. And the easiest way to compensate people for that damage that they're incurring on their own environment is just to simply pay them. And once you have that, then you can add in other revenue sources from that, perhaps a financial transaction tax, a land value tax, other things where maybe there's a sense that we should collectively own things like the environment or our land around us. And then you can just add that into the fund and hopefully the fund itself is popular because again, people like getting money. So on that note, I think that, and this isn't entirely a con, but it's a, I think a cautionary note on how you actually structure the policy, which is if you are establishing a direct carbon dividend such that the money you bring in from a carbon tax is immediately paying out to people, I think that it, you do create a case for saying that some sort of natural resource, we should... When people are using that, some money comes in, we should get a chunk of that. And so something like a land value tax, other things like that, there becomes an argument that, okay, this is something we should also do and, and add to this. I think that going beyond that, which if you want to get a full basic income, you probably have to do. I mean, there's only so far you can get with the 
funding from natural resources that, that exist in our country, then it, it gets a bit more challenging to, to make that argument. If, if the way that you frame this is like, okay, natural resources, here's your share of it. And so I, I think, though, that if you can instead frame this as saying, this is money coming in that we should all have a share of, that's not tied to national resources per se, but is more broadly tied to like the general good, then, then I think it, it gets easier to talk about something like a financial transaction tax, something like a wealth tax, something like w whatever sort of tax where we're saying everyone deserves a chunk of whatever source of revenue. And I, and I think that one thing that can make a difference there is, is whether, whether you're directly paying out the money that comes in or whether you're using that money to establish a social wealth fund that is then paying out. So using more of the Alaska model, saying like, let's build up this shared wealth, and then that dividends from that pay for everyone. I think that model lends itself much more easily to expansion, such that eventually you could get to a level where, where you actually do hit a full UBI. Yeah, and the advantage of a sovereign wealth fund is you can invest it, and so you can hopefully give out more money than you take in. It's, there's just a, a lag time there. And I'd be curious, I actually don't know of the polling data, I think there's some out there, of how Alaskans think of the permanent fund. Is it oil money, or is it just their money that they're entitled to as, as Alaskans? Uh, I'm not sure. I think it's both, but yeah, right, as yeah. far as how that balances, it's a really good question. Yeah, but I think... If you do detach the source a little bit from the receiving of the money, it maybe starts to feel more like an entitlement, and it's just something that, you know, and maybe even a source of pride in in your country, that you get this as as I don't want to say citizen, but as a, a member, a resident, and and so yeah, I, I think I definitely see that argument. I also can see the flip side of a carbon tax will you know, raise the cost of living and just putting money in people's pockets before that cost of living increase hurts them. I mean, maybe you do a little of both or a little top up just to kind of balance that out a little bit before the, um, the sovereign wealth fund checks start coming. But I, I think that's a manageable problem. I think the, the bigger issue is, is just enacting a carbon dividend. Um, once we have that, I think of figuring out the rest of these problems will be not a small challenge, but a you know the the details after the major hurdle has been leapt. I think another potential I, I don't know if I say barrier here, but limitation is that it it probably will take a while to get up to a full basic income level. Even if you're layering programs on top of another, the idea of I mean the political battle on every different source of funding probably being significant and time consuming that it may be some decent number of years before you could actually achieve a full basic income level. Uh, and and I, I think in some ways that's inherent to the fact that it is universal because it's more people getting it. The other approaches we talked about, you could potentially much more quickly get people at basic income level, just not as many people. So it's not, I would say it's not purely a con, but it is a trade-off that exists here. That'll do it for this episode of the Basic Income Podcast. Thank you to our producer, Eric Davidson. Please rate us and review us on the podcast service of your choice, and please subscribe if you have not already. And tell your friends, we're always looking to bring more folks into this needed conversation, and we'll talk to you next week. Mm -hmm.